Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. For season 10 of the podcast, I am interviewing a dozen futurists about what life will be like for humans 30 to 50 years from now. Today's guest is Kevin Kelly. Kevin is senior maverick at Wired, the award-winning magazine he co-founded in 1993. He is co-chair of the Long Now Foundation, a membership organization that champions long-term thinking. He is founder of the Cool Tools website, which has been reviewing tools daily for 20 years. Kevin has written multiple best-selling books about the future of technology. His newest book, Excellent Advice for Living, is a book of 450 modern proverbs for a pretty good life. Kevin is best known for his radical optimism, and in today's episode, he paints a picture for us of what life might look like in 2053. Kevin, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks for inviting me. As you know, this season of 12 Geniuses is Futurist Fridays, talking with 12 futurists. And I would love to have you just paint a picture for what the future looks like in 2053. One of the big questions underlying kind of making one of these scenarios is like, is it even possible for Moore's Law to continue? Moore's Law is this fundamental phenomena that we don't really know exactly why it happens, but for every year since computers have begun, or every two years or every 18 months in between, they've doubled in power per dollar. If that didn't, if that doesn't happen, we have a very different world. If you could imagine a world where you bought a computer and it was like, it didn't get any better or at the same price, you know, like in 10 years from now, or 20 years, it's like, that's a very different, that's a very different world. Because this idea of Moore's law, it's, it's observational. There's no theoretical underpinning about why that should be. So that's, so one scenario that this kind of stampede that we have slows down because we've reached the limits of what we can do with cramming little tiny transistors into a small space. Maybe it shifts to some other methods and that's what the hope is right now is that, well, there's biological computing or there's quantum computing and that kind of takes over. but. So far that we don't have much, you know, I mean, it hasn't. So, so anyway, so that's one scenario where, and, and, and then we can kind of imagine a world where maybe the rate of change slows down. And what are the implications of that? It might be that we have cultural change as a, a driver of novelty. So, we, you know, it's like, it's not all about the text. It's about having weird lifestyles or it's about, you know, arch using the same tools, but just sort of reimagining what we can do with it. So it could, in some ways, still be a very exciting place. So, so that's one axis is this slowing of, of Moore's Law. And then another one could be that we have, you know, a drastically different world because of AI. The AI really is as significant as I think it is and that it unrolls pretty fast. And that we have, we have a world where there is ubiquitous embedded AI in everything. And, you know, there's two or three different ways that that could go where you have this intensely technologically and everything accelerated. So maybe there's quantum computing discovered as well, and that becomes normal. And so, so this, so this kind of very intensely AI saturated world with hundreds of different varieties. And, and that's a little bit more common, you know, scenario. Maybe a, a third, a third possibility is, is that we have, it's, maybe it's a subgroup of the AI, 
So, so one version of that is, is again, that, that it comes ubiquitous, it's in everything. But there, there, there could be a, something happens where the network effects of AI become predominant. And network effects is this idea that the more powerful network becomes, the more attractive it is to new members or new devices or new developers. And the more they join, the more attractive it becomes. So you have this thing where suddenly you have a monopoly. You have a natural monopoly where one thing takes over. And so even though there are hundreds or maybe thousands of different varieties and species of AI, maybe there is one company, or that's the question, company, country, something. that. So you have this really hugely dominant you have a dominance at the global level that we have not seen before. You have where, where this, this AI system is so powerful and so valuable that everybody wants to use it because it is so much better. And yet it really brings, it concentrates the power in a, in a way that we haven't even seen with social media. And so that's a world that would be very different because it, Maybe it's China that does it. And that would be kind of a weird for us. Like it's the most powerful AI in the world and everybody wanted to, you know, use it. Like it was really cheap, but it was like a million, or it was like say, say a thousand times better than anything else. And it was cheaper than anything else. And, you know, it's a service, a utility that you can just send to you and you don't have to make it. That's a different world than, than we're used to geopolitically, all kinds of things. So that's that kind of the opposite of decentralization where you have this con even further concentration of it is another possible scenario. And, and when we do scenarios, we always like to have four. This version is where the crypto wins and you actually do have a very decentralized version of the internet. You have incredibly decentralized finance model and the consequence of that would be kind of a much more of a active underground and dark web become endemic. So it becomes a little harder for the big monopolistic dominant countries or, or companies to take place. So those are kind of four general backbones to, to, to the world. And then you can kind of play out some of the consequences of a day in life in those four. So let me ask you, and maybe we'll go on reverse order, this Web 3.0 and crypto scenario that you're talking about, how does that impact governance and governments in your mind over the next 30 years if, if we go down that scenario or if that's the possibility that we realize? The earliest thing that might happen is that we'd have new organizational forms of work. So right now, we have a couple of choices at the extreme. We have a solo individual, you and me, the freelancer, the person who's been interested in a thousand true fans, right? You're, you're just a solo person and you're going to work directly with your customers or whatever else. And that can kind of, you can multiply it by a couple to have a partnership, or maybe there's just four of you in family business. But the thing that we invented was the corporation was this idea of like, well, together with a hundred people, you could you could become more efficient. You could share resources like accounting or whatever. An alternative way to imagine 
having a bunch of people work together on something with a different arrangement than, than, than the company. Maybe they would all have a larger stake of ownership, maybe a larger stake in the actual decisions being made. And so we could imagine, you know, maybe hundreds of different arrangements where people are working together to make something happen, but are not organized like a company and they're not just a family business or something else. And so we would need additional tools of collaboration to be able to do that and maybe credit can flow through. So like, it's like, it's like if you have an idea, there was some way for that, for the credit to flow back to you. If other people used your idea, even if they didn't know who you were, or maybe, you know, again, you're not in the same company, you're just, it's like open source. Okay. It's open source. And then you're working on it. If you contribute an idea, maybe there'll be some way for the compensation to come back to you. Okay. And so, so, so that's one thing I could imagine in one places it might start was is having a bunch of different structures to enable people to work and collaborate together that are not sole proprietor or a company. Let's go back to AI for a moment. Can you give a historical comparison to another technology or another innovation that AI is akin to as we move into the future? Yeah, uh, th th there are several. So one kind of elementary one I would like to make is a parallel with electricity. So until the advent of industrial age, anything that we made in the world had to be made with muscle power, either human muscle or animal muscle. And that was pretty limiting, although we could do amazing things and the pyramids were built with muscle power, and cathedrals were built with muscle power and lots of grand projects. And then we discovered artificial power, which was water power, wind power, solar, engine power, machine, oil power, coal power, steam power. And with this artificial power, we could have something about 250 horses inside a, inside a vehicle. 250 horses at your command, okay? And so then you can throw up a skyscraper and you can make a continental railway and you could make factories, make all these things that fill our lives with this artificial power. And more so, this artificial power was delivered as on a grid as a utility. So in the very beginning, you had to make your own power, but then nowadays you just buy as much power as you want. So it's a service and a commodity. And that's what we're doing with, with intelligence and smartness is, is that it's going to be delivered. So, so we've taken artificial power and now we're adding artificial intelligence to that artificial power as a service, meaning that you'll buy as much AI as you want. You don't have to necessarily record it as a commodity. It's in, in the same way that the industrial revolution was, you take anything that was manually done and you added power to it. You electrified it. And huge numbers of businesses and wealth and individuals made money and innovation thinking about take something manual that's done with muscles and I'm going to add, electrify it. So now we're in the business of everything that's electrified, we're going to cognify. We're going to take everything we do that's already been electrified and automated and we're going to add AI to it and we're just going to go through everything that we do and like one of the first ones we did was we took taxis and added AI to it and that's Uber and so 
we're, we're now in this business of realizing that we can add it to almost anything that's already electrified, already powered. And so that's, so, so, so that's one base level. That's kind of what it is, do, is doing. And that's why I say kind of like the next 10,000 startups are take X, add AI. Okay. And so, so that's, the, the, that's a rudimentary kind of elemental thing that, that'll, that'll be happening and that it's a parallel to the electrification of the world where now we're going to do the cognification of the world. That's, that's an important one though. And, and how fundamentally it changed life in this country and then around the world, electricity, AI will do the same thing. And the reason why I was able to kind of get over my angst and it was really 10 minutes. I was kind of thinking to myself, I knew that AI was embedded in our companies and, and they were using it, but it wasn't individuals. And I, I started to think about the parallel with the phone, right? Is, is it, it's a tool. It's a really, really powerful tool. Now you might use the phone, the, the smartphone to do deep level research, right? To prepare for a presentation or something like that. And I might play Candy Crush on it. It's really dependent on how we use it. Right. And that's that's what I started to think about with Chat GPT is like, well, if you're not asking the right questions, it's it's not going to be a powerful tool for you. And still there is individual differentiation. And and that kind of helped me get over like this angst that I had. It's like, oh, okay, it's it's not the end of the world. It's so the for me, the first the best framing for the chat stuff is to understand them or to, to, to think of them as what I call universal interns. These are interns. Now, every person, in, in the way that sort of Google, Google Maps gave everybody a navigator sitting next to them. So everybody in the world has this navigator, this pilot, who's gonna tell them where to go, where to turn. It's an amazing thing. Now, with chat, everybody will have an intern sitting next to them. And that intern will do summaries, bullet points, research, analysis, write some scripts. But these are all first drafts. And you have to look them over and you've got to polish them and you may have to ask them to go back and there's a little dialogue. Would you, would you think about this? Or are you sure about that? Give me your sources. And so you're working with the intern. And it's embarrassing to release the work of the intern as your own because it's like going to be, so, so what, what the intern, the intern is basically the wisdom of the crowd intelligence. It's, it's average. It's very bland because it's, it's based on the average human knowledge and behavior. And you have to press it if you want it to be a little special. There's little tricks to, to work with it, to get it to what you want, but you're working with your intern. And the intern is amazing. Some will be better than others, more suited. They're, they're going to have different personalities and they're going to have different strengths. But everybody will have an intern or two at their disposal to do all the kind of things that you would say, but you've got to work with them, have a dialogue, and you might even train your intern for your own personal quirks or interests or the ways that you like to work. But they're interns and they are only going to do part of what you want done, but they're going to help you do it. I love history and I feel like history really helps me understand where we can go into the future. And one of the things that 
we are doing societally is judging people in the past based on the social conventions of the day. And so there's this idea of progressophobia, failure to acknowledge the progress that we've made. And I'm just curious about what mistakes are we making in 2023 that in 2073, 50 years out, we're just going to look back and shake our heads at. What are some of the things that come to mind to you? Some of them are just kind of trivial. Like I think, you know, a, a common one is, you know, eating the flesh of animals as a, you know, that might become embarrassing just over time. I think it's possible that having your parents choose your name maybe is embarrassing. Having choosing your marriage partner. So we might have this thing where more people have self-assigned names, maybe even a naming ritual when they're a certain age where they get to choose their name as they choose other things in their lives. Well, I think we're, we're absolutely going to be wrong about our ideas about intelligence. And that's one of the things we keep being surprised by. What we're discovering is that tasks that we thought were more complicated were not really that complicated. Being creative, that's actually a mechanical thing. It's not a really high level thing. Writing a sentence or, tr or translating, and that's the surprise that we're kind of confronting. And that's what we've been wrong about is that thinking intelligence is this sort of almost spiritual thing when it's a very, very mechanical and can be reproduced in a mechanical system. Okay, that, it's, so, so AI is fundamentally going to be the major scientific method where we understand ourselves. I think we're really wrong about what we think about our our brains and ourselves. One of your speeches or your presentations that I saw, you said this, most of the solutions of today will be problems tomorrow. And I was like, yes, that's brilliant. And so, you know, I think about one of, one of the big problems that I feel we are going to have is just this massive amount of data on each of us, these profiles, and who has access to those. You know, how do we try to stuff this back into Pandora's box because you know, social media- I don't think it goes back into the box. It, it doesn't go back in the box. No, no. No, 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 no. We're, we're going to have we're gonna have total surveillance. I mean, uh, the, the VR, the metaverse world is a world of total surveillance. That's the only way it works. It works because it's capturing all your movements, but where you're looking, your emotions, your gaze, the time thing, your entire- Bodies, behavior, and movement, and emotions are all being captured in order to be projected into this world. And then the question is, you know, what happens to it? Where does it? Do? But it is going to be monitored and captured and surveilled. And so I call it covalence, which is what we want. We want to have a symmetry so that we have some control over it. It's accountable. We get some benefits from it. And so AI is inevitable, but the character of who owns it, who controls it. Who pays for it? Is it international or national? Is it commercial or nonprofit? Is it open source or closed? All these things we have a choice about, and they matter tremendously in it. And the same with surveillance, I could say too. Surveillance is going to come, but we have a choice about the character of it and who owns it and how much access we have, what's accountable. Is it covalence, you know, and so forth? So, so there are choices, but the choices are not like putting it back into the box. That's not a choice. And we have to kind of figure out ways to, to shift the character of it to, to what we want. And that steering, I call it, is 
happens individually. It's from how you use Twitter will influence Twitter in aggregate. And so individually, we can decide not to use Twitter. Then governmentally, there'll be regulations. I think regulations are necessary and vital, but they should be very slow. The worst thing is premature regulation. Even the inventors of these technologies don't know what they're good for. It only takes us, the only way we can figure out, we can't think about it. I mean, we can't figure out everything by thinking we have to actually use them. It's, it's using them that we find out what they're good for and what they're bad for, what they're harm. Not thinking about them, not trying to project and imagine all the things wrong. It's very easy to imagine all the things wrong. We actually want to have some evidence. We want to actually use it and see what actually it does and how actually it hurts or benefits. So it's through use that we get to steer these things. And only after we've used them do we know what they're about. And then once we kind of have some idea about consensus about whether we want it, we can begin to regulate it. So one one comment on that, you had mentioned that the surveillance is going to identify our emotions. And I don't think a lot of us are really good at looking over the course of the day and seeing how our emotions change. So this can be a tool for helping us become more self-aware and improve. And, you know, so that that's, that's so there, there is some positive to that. With all of these things, there's positive. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I was one of the persons who began the quantified self movement. It's because we are opaque to ourselves. We don't really have easy access to our own minds, our own motivations. And, and everything. And so illuminating that, using technology to illuminate us, you know, make visible, say, our glucose levels or, or whatever, or, or, or moods or emotional states, are, it, it, it is a huge step that has potential to be abused. Going back to your thing, the other half of the idea that most of the problems in the future are going to come from new technology is that the solutions to those problems is more technology, not less technology. That's the other half of it. Those new solutions of technologies are themselves going to make problems in the next future, which will have to be solved by other technology. And so you say, what do we get from all that? This sounds like a rat race. Well, what we're getting is increasing choices and op our options and possibilities. Okay, so, so we have more ways to be someone and to, to earn money now than the farmers did back 300 years ago, where you could only choice to be a blacksmith or a farmer, and that was it. Now you can be a ballerina, a mathematician, yoga instructor, a mortgage broker, whatever. So, so that's what we get. We, the, the purpose of that kind of treadmill of new problems, new solutions, new problems, new solutions, is that we get more and more choices, which is what cities are about. Why people move to cities is because they have more choices. So, so one of the things I would say in my advice, and I want to come back to my little book of excellent advice for the living, is that when you have a choice between options, look for the one that increases the number of options that you get. Which, which one is going to give you more options in, in the long run? And because options are what will make it more likely that you will be able to find the thing to express your own genius. And I b truly believe that all of us individually have a, unique mixture of talents just that we have unique faces and that we're using technology to help us express and liberate and share that genius and we need technologies depending on who we are to to do our best to be our best so you you had mentioned your book excellent advice for living 
Why did you write it? And what will people learn by reading it? I wrote it for my kids who we raised them with the idea that kids don't pay any attention to what you say. They only pay attention to what you do. So we never really preached very much, but there were things that when they were adult, I felt, I wish that I had known and been told when I was younger. And I decided to write those down for them. And so I just kind of try to reduce whole books of wisdom into a single sentence because I found it easier to myself to remind myself if I could repeat this little proverb or maxim. And, and then I was sharing it with them. And I eventually had 450 of them and I wanted them rather to be scattered around the internet to be able to have a little book which you could hand to a young person or person young at heart. And they include things like work to become, not to acquire. I'm just moving, I'm just reading these at random from the book here. Be strict with yourself for giving of others. The reverse is hell for everybody. Your passions should fit you exactly, but your purpose in life should exceed you. You want to work for something that's bigger than yourself. That's where you get real satisfaction. The response, your response to insult is you're probably right, because often they are. You know, it's like for marital bliss, if you're married, take turns allowing each partner to be always right. I found that really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, compliment people behind their back because it'll come back to you. These are all things born out of my own experience. A lot of it is kind of ancient wisdom that's been around for a long time, but I try to put it into my own words. I have some, I have no ideas where I got some of them. Other ones, I just sat down and tried to distill something from my own experience. Here's one. There is no such thing as being on time. Either you're late or you're early your choice. So I think promptness is a sign of respect. And so I'm very prompt. So yeah, so some of it, I try to be very, very practical. For instance, here, handy measure, the distance between your fingertips when you stretch your arms out is roughly to the order of magnitude your height. So if you're trying to do something where, where you're trying to figure out just remember that your arms outward, that's the Da Vinci picture of the outstretched man. So by the way, if you ask funders for money, they'll give you advice. But if you ask them for advice, they'll give you money. <laughs> so there's more advice like that. Things I want to remember, like one that I recall all the time is if I've invited to speak somewhere or go somewhere or have a meeting or dinner, the question you want to ask yourself, that I ask myself is, would I do this if it was tomorrow? Would I do this if it was tomorrow? It's very easy to say yes when it's six months out. But, You're so okay, right. Uh, wants I, can think of, I can think of things that I've, I've committed to thinking, uh, six months from now, it'll never come. <laughs> and then when it comes, I'm like, oh, do I really want to do this? <laughs> would I do, so I ask myself, would I do this if it was tomorrow? tomorrow morning. And that's really helpful. When you lose something in your household and you know you have it and you finally find it, say you can't place, remember where you put your little flashlight. When you're returning it, don't return it to where you found it. Return it to where you first looked for it. Because that's where you're going to look for it. That's again. so good. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things I repeat to myself that are full of the book. There's 450 others I think anybody young at young heart would enjoy it as a gift. 
and I'm very excited by it. Yeah, congratulations. I know this is not your first book. You've written many others, but it. I have started a collection of a care package that I'm going to give to my daughters when they go off to school. They're almost five and seven. And one of the books is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. And I'll have Man Search for Meaning in it. And and your book will be in there too, because I think it's it's fantastic. And they're young, but those are principles that are enduring. So thank you. I love the idea. Actually, I did the same thing. I had a plastic crate that I had for my kids when they went off to college that I accumulated. And I had tools in it. And that those tools were actually the origin of the book I did called Cool Tools. It began as trying to squeeze a bunch of tools and realizing I didn't have enough room in this little tiny crate. That they, So I put this book in it in addition to the tools. You know, there was like a cordless driver and there was a staple gun. There were a couple of essential things that I think every young person should have. And then there was this cool tool book, which was the Uber book that had all the other tools in it. But I like that idea. It's a great idea to have a crate to give them when they leave. Kevin, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. We will return next week when I interview futurist Ufuk Tarhan, who joins us all the way from Istanbul. Ufuk will paint a picture of how life on Earth will change over the next 30 to 50 years. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a genius.